This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. There are certain events in history which have often been thought of as crucial. The Battle of Thermopylae is seen to be one of those. Two and a half thousand years ago, a few warriors from the cities of Greece, especially Sparta, held off the hugely more numerous Persians, about two million of them, two million of them it's claimed, who brought together for this war people such as the Babylonians, the Medeans and the Egyptians, often more civilised then than the infant states of Greece. But later readings of that battle have said that it saved what became Western civilization, its democracy, its Socratic cast of mind, its philosophy, its arts and sciences, the engine room of the modern world. Or is this just mythologizing? Were the 300 Spartans combing their hair in final acknowledgement that they were facing death at Thermopylae in truth so crucial? Did they enable Western civilization as we know it to survive and thrive? The father of history, Herodotus, thought so 2,500 years ago. The novelist, William Golding, thought so 50 years ago. What of today's historians? How important is the Greek and Persian war to the story of democracy then? Was the West and its values really so far removed from life in the Persian Empire? With me to discuss the legacy of Thermopylae and the Persian Wars is Edith Hall, Professor of Greek Cultural History at Durham University and author of Inventing the Barbarian. Tom Holland, historian and author of a forthcoming book on the Greco-Persian Wars, and Simon Goldhill, Professor of Greek at King's College, Cambridge. Tom Holland, the Battle of Thermopylae, Battle of Thermopylae marked the start of the Persians' second attempt to conquer Greece. Can you take us back to the first invasion to get it in context and give us a date? Yeah. Um, the Persian Empire is really, I suppose, in the long history of the, the Middle East, the pivotal turning point. Um, it's the heir of the ancient kingdoms um, of the Near East, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria. But it absorbs all these and establishes what will become the first great world empire, therefore the ancestor of the Macedonian empires, the Roman empires, the empires of the Caliphate. Um, this, this is... is some, date. Um, we're talking about 540 um, and... B.C. 540 B.C., yes. And the Persians, in a sense, come from nowhere... They explode onto the stage of history with the most incredible bang. Um, to begin with, they are an obscure, backward kingdom of semi-nomads. Within 30 years, they have conquered most of the known world, from the Greek cities of the Aegean coast, um, to the Hindu Kush, to Central Asia, to Egypt. And this is something wholly, wholly exceptional. No king has been master of such a vast domain before. Um, this was Cyrus. This is, yes, the man who achieves this extraordinary, I, I mean, really the most phenomenal um, rate of conquest until, I suppose, the Muslim invasions uh, a thousand years later, is a man called Cyrus. And um, he does it really through, he has two key attributes. One is um, exceptional military genius. The, um, the Persians have an ability to move very, very fast. They attack when they are not expected. For instance, they do winter campaigns, which is unheard of for the time. They're very, very skilled, interestingly, thinking about Thermopylae, they're very, very skilled at outflanking. This is often how the Persians, for instance, defeat the Babylonians. They outflank all their defences, come at them by surprise. Um, and the Persians are by no means reluctant to indulge in um, atrocities to 
intimidate and to overwhelm and to shock and awe, if you like. Um, having said that, um, what is extraordinary about Cyrus's reputation is that for a man who conquered the known world, he's remembered almost as a prince of peace. Um, he is exceptionally talented at propaganda and he is exceptionally talented at identifying the interests of the Persian kingdom with those of the people he has conquered. He's an absolute master of self-presentation so that, for instance, with the Babylonians, he will present himself as the king of Babylon. And famously, with the descendants of the Judeans who have been brought from, um, from Judah to, to Babylon there to sit by the rivers and weep, um, he says that they can go home, refound the temple of Jerusalem, and he is hailed by the second Isaiah um, as a messiah, as, as an anointed one, as the Christ. Well, that fills us in very uh, uh, with a great deal of um, bounce about the Cyrus. It's Darius who invades what we now think of as Greece. Although, in fact, yes. there were there were embryonic states, there were cities, there were a, a bunch over there. He goes there, and we get the Battle of Marathon. Can you briefly give us that? Why he wanted to, to go there? Why Marathon was such a shock to him? Well, the, the background to this, I think, is that, that Darius is... Re if, if Cyrus is the man who um, conquers the world, Darius is really the man who consolidates it. Um, and he does this partly by imposing um, tribute, formalising the system of the empire that has been set up under Cyrus. But he also brings a very potent ideological framework to what he's doing. And he has to do this essentially because he is a usurper. He has certainly murdered one son of Cyrus, possibly murdered two. Um, and yet he presents himself as the defender of truth. And in his uh, account of how he came to the throne, he says that the son of Cyrus who he murdered was in fact an imposter, somebody who had replaced... We have to get the marathon. Yes, sorry. We, so, we've got to get to Thermopylae, and that's beyond he, marathon, he, and then we've got to get the Salamis. But Dar Darius, Darius is presenting himself as a defender of truth. This is yeah, a key, gets, key yeah, yeah, Persian okay. concept. And he invents a god in the sky, and he's representing the god in the sky, and that's the great god, and away he goes to marathon. Well, he... Crucially, for the Persians, they are the defenders of order. Yeah. Those who attack their order are, in that sense, if you want to use modern terminology, uh, terrorist states. The Athenians have come to the Persians and have said, we give you earth and water, we give you the earth and water of our state. By doing this, they are essentially asking for admission into the symbolic order of the Persian Empire. They're saying, we want to take our place in this framework of truth and order that you are the defender of. And Darius says, fine, in that case, I will take your earth and water and you will have to do what I say. The Athenians have no sooner done this than they start thinking, actually, we don't want to be part of the Persian Empire. We want to get out of it. Honestly, Tom, I'm really, I'm really okay. enjoying it very much. No, so seriously, I'm enjoying it very much, but we've got to get a move the on. The real problem is that the Athenians had sent a large fleet of 20 ships to help the Eastern Greeks rebel and actually put two fingers up to, yes. to the Persian Empire in 493 BC. Darius was absolutely livid. He did worse atrocities than he's ever done, and he partly invaded mainland Greece to get back at Athens. This is a revenge piece of re re revenge campaigning. And Simon, when he uh, when he came to Greece, what was what 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 Greece did he find? What was there then? When Darius yeah, invaded, Darius, yeah. there was no country Greece. There are a series of individual states, who most famously Athens, Sparta, Corinth. 
And it's because of that divisiveness that Greece was in a particularly weak position, because no individual city had any chance whatsoever of standing up against this huge army. Yet there was no way, no natural way, for them to band together. They'd always been at war with one another. And that was the problem that faced Greece in the, uh, this huge invading army. As a schoolboy reading about it, I was very definitely, but this is post-imperial or still imperial when I was a schoolboy, uh, Britain, which took a lot from Roman Greece, as we all know, that the Greeks were, at that time, although they were divided, they had democracy, which the, the invaders, the Persians, had, did not have, that mm. they had a particular sort of culture, which was, mm. which was a culture which was going to define our culture, which the Greeks and Persians did not have. How far is that true? Well, or the, was it true then? <laughs> it's... Uh, it's true for Athens. Athens already has an embryonic democracy, and that's crucial for the way they respond to the Persians. But nobody would ever suggest the Spartans were a democratic state. They were ruled by two kings. They had an extraordinarily formal, almost totalitarian model. The Corinthians also had a different model. So each state had its own possibility of, of, of a, a political response. In terms of general culture, well, they had a language they could understand. And some people would say they shared the same gods. Some people would say they shared certain rituals. But they could also make those things seem very different to each other. It's, uh, it was not yet a country that could say, I am a Greek, and have a meaning behind that. That was something that the Persian Wars helped form for us. If you were taking a, a snapshot in, uh, at, in 480 BC, 484, yeah. uh, would you say, look, the Persians are, the Persians and the Persian army and all they're bringing to bear are, um, less well educated, less capable of developing what we know as civilization. I'm sorry to talk in these easy terms, but it's, it might be helpful than the Greeks were. Was the, was the Greek, was the Greek potential seen at that time? I think it's one of those extraordinary questions. It depends on whose side you are. All wars are wars between cultures. If you looked at the Persian Empire, you had an extraordinarily highly formed uh, bureaucracy. You had, uh, over a, a huge distance, you had great wealth, great luxury. And some would say that was a sign of civilization. There was also a literature. There was also, as Tom mentioned, a great propaganda machine. But at the same time, in Greece, we have things such as tragedy. We have the beginnings of theatre, beginnings of democracy, the values that we care to privilege as being the origins of the West. And so, yeah, you could say that there was a big clash between what we want culture to look like. Edith, when uh, we come to the Battle of Marathon, can you tell us why that was... We, we know why it was fought. Tom's told us why it was fought, and Simon's conf confirmed that. So they get to Marathon. What happened then uh, that was such a surprise, and why was it so significant? Well, the Battle of Marathon, whatever else, did demonstrate quite extraordinary courage on, on the behalf of the um, Athenians. I mean, you had got the Persian lion holding down Macedonia in the north, North Africa in the south, terrorising the Aegean with really brutal acts of atrocity. And the Athenians said... No, they did. The Persians got to Eubea, which is on the eastern coast of, of mainland Greece, sacked Eretria, which is one of the most beautiful old cities, you know, enslaved its women and marched. Well, they actually sailed over to Attica. The Athenians got there in no time. The speed with which they mobilised was unbelievable. They sent off famously by Dipodes to Sparta to run the marathon to try and get help. The Spartans didn't come in time because they were doing a religious festival. And the Athenians managed to hold off 
the Persians by quite extraordinary courage, if we're to believe Herodotus. They hurled themselves at the centre, the Persian centre, which can had cavalry as well as, 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 as infantry. And Herodotus actually, you know, says this was the first time an awful lot of these ordinary Athenian peasants had ever seen a Mede, had ever seen a Persian, had ever seen this magnificent armour, had ever seen these sorts of horses in warfare. And they ran, and the Persians couldn't believe it. And it was actually the sort of naive naivety of this shock tactic of running, <laughs> these sort of thousands of them. And the casualties seem to have been, and we actually have excavated the tombs here, the mounds. There does seem to be some reality behind Herodotus' figures. 192 of the died and about 6,000 of the Persians. Um, it, it, it was an extraordinary battle. However, there were a lot of extraordinary battles in antiquity and not all of them did John Stuart Mill say about them, which is what you learned at school, I think, in On Liberty. He actually said that the Battle of Marathon was more important than the Battle of Hastings in English history, which is quite something. And why would you take that on for? Do you think there's any validity in his saying that? Um... I, I actually have two, two voices in my head. I have, I have a sort of intuitive gut one, which is, good on the Greeks, good on the Greeks, God, they were brave, you know. Mm. And then I have the sort of rational academic one, which just says, this is all ideological constructs, and it's all a sort of interaction between the past and the present, and it wasn't real. Um, so you really have to take your pick between those two different voices. It still is an exciting story. All the battles are, and that's why they, they're beginning to make such excellent movies. <laughs> <laughs> but did this, what did this battle do, three of you, before we move on to the marathon do, in terms of defining, or did it do? Did it define Greekness, Tom? Um, Tom Holland. The, the Greeks had never before beaten the Persians. Mm. So in talking about the courage um, and the resolve that it took to advance across this plain into a hail of arrows and slingshot, that in itself was a great achievement. And it showed that the Persians could be defeated. And that was, that was key, absolutely key, because until then there'd been an immense sense of defeatism, I think. Um, had Athens fallen... We know what the Persians were planning for them. They were planning to, um, to raise it, to install a tyrant again, so democracy would have been abolished. Um, and the leading sons of the Athenians would have been castrated and carried off back to, um, back to Persia. So probably Athens as a functioning city-state would have ceased to exist. So, yeah, I, I think it was, it was indeed crucial, and I would, uh, I would go with John Stuart Mill on his judgment <laughs> of it. On the other hand, as Edith reminded us all uh, earlier, uh, Herodotus is known as the father of history, and then she added, but also the father of lies. Yes. So, Simon, well, and we rely, uh, Edith's animated description, which should be pick of the year, <laughs> I mean, uh, as a battle of Thermopylae, is, is straight out of Herodotus. I mean, we have Herodotus, the Greek historian, talking, and he talks in, a fant it's an amazing description of Thermopylae, which we come to. A minute to do. But so we're on that. What, how true is it? Um, <laughs> it is undoubtedly true in certain basic facts. There was a battle, it was won by the Athenians, it was extraordinary. The battle. Marathon. This is yeah. Marathon. Yeah. Yeah, this is Marathon. The figures for the Persians who came through are, are obviously fantastical. I mean, the idea that two million people invaded Greece. I mean, there's no way they could have eaten or drunk in that country at that time. And that's bigger than the whole population of, the, of Greece in all, in all probability. So those sorts of things are definitely exaggerated. Herodotus was the most fantastic storyteller. And the stories that he writes about Marathon and Thermopylae have fed the imagination of the West ever since. They give us our models of bravery. That's why when Edith can tell the story, it's so familiar because those models have come through generations of school children learning about how to be brave, how to be a soldier. But one should never forget that Herodotus had an agenda. He was inventing Greekness. 
there was no way that we could talk about Greekness a hundred years earlier. It wasn't even an idea. And so when we have our origins of Western culture in this ideas of democracy and Greekness, that comes about primarily because of Herodotus. So history and lies, what comes between those? Well, ideology. And that's what he gives us. Can we move on now to Thermopylae, Tom Holland? Because after Marathon, there's a 10-year gap, as we now see, mm -hmm. and the Athenians had every reason to think the Persians wouldn't come back. They'd seen them off. And anyway, they weren't terribly important in the scheme of things as far as the great Persian Empire is concerned. There's much else to deal with, as you outlined in your first answer, to the Hindu Kush, down into uh, Egypt, and so on and so forth. Um, what happened at Thermopylae? The Persians invade again, and although under Xerxes, this under time. King Xerxes, Darius's yeah. son, and even though the figure of two million is an exaggeration, in a sense, it's responding to something very real about the Persian forces. Which they were designed to overwhelm and intimidate. Xerxes deliberately does not go for Cyrus's policy of invading with a small mobile force. He attacks with people drawn from every corner of his empire. And, it's and when um, the Greeks send some spies to, to have a look at the camp, Xerxes finds them. He doesn't execute them. He gives them a guided tour around to see exactly how many people are invading and then sends them back to try and spread demoralization. Um, however, the Athenians and the Spartans are backed into a corner. There is no way that they can um, possibly come to terms with the Persians because when the Persians sent ambassadors to Sparta, for instance, to ask for submission, to ask for earth and water, the Spartans rather wittily threw them down a well and told them to go and find the earth and water there. So Sparta has no choice but to fight. Having said that, we've had this thing in the Marathon. The Spartans didn't turn up at Marathon because they were celebrating a festival. Uh, the Spartans are, are, are sensationally superstitious. And even as the huge Persian juggernaut is sweeping down through northern Greece towards Athens on the main road, the Spartans are celebrating their festival and they cannot send their main army to block the route. And this is key because at Thermopylae, a pass, a very, very narrow pass between the sea and the mountains, where really only two wagons can go at a time, this is the ideal place to block off the, to block off the attack. The weight of Persian troops cannot be mobilised. And the Spartans exceptionally, even though there is this festival, decide to send an advance guard. And, there is, and they send one of their two kings, Leonidas, and I think there's a sense in which Leonidas knew that this was a suicide mission. He takes 300 of his picked men, um, but only men who have already had sons. So the lines will continue. They occupy the pass of Thermopylae and wait. And in the distance, they see a dust cloud approaching, the monstrous sound of the armies coming nearer. And they're told, the Persians have so many men that the, the flight of their arrows will let you fight in the shade. Um, Sorry, I haven't got that. <laughs> Sorry, don't worry. They, um, don't worry. We're trying to get a lot of stuff in. But let's, let's, can you check it up now, Edith Hall? There, uh, there were some Greeks, about 5,000 Greeks joined the Assyrian Spartans, as I understand it, around this pass. And the Persians That's are coming the with this mythic army, mm -hmm. crossing the Hellespont with tribe after tribe after tribe after tribe after tribe. It's a whole chapter in Herodotus just describe the tribes and peoples that crossed the Hellespont on these ships laid in line with planks across them. It's, it's, full, it's fantastical. So they got to Thermopylae, <coughs> and there's the Battle of Thermopylae, which we can take it for granted, everybody knows, a very few people, centrally the Spartans, fought, uh, according to Herodotus and according to con collaborative evidence, fought with, with a quite remarkable courage and tenacity, and were, this is the crunch really, defeated. 
They were defeated. They died. They died to almost the last man. Um, and they, I, I have every, um, you know, I think Herodotus is probably telling a true story, a true fiction, when he says that when they had lost their weapons, they fought with, with their fingernails and their teeth and they tore at the hair and the faces of the Persians. They did anything, you know, that they could. One would if you were <laughs> fighting to the death. And I think there are, the religious thing, which may be negative in terms of the Spartans, in terms of them being very conservative about actually getting out of Sparta and going off to fight, uh, is also very positive here, though, because I think, I mean, two things. One is Leonidas had actually very famously gone to the Delphic Oracle to say, what should we do when he heard the Spartans were coming? And Delphic Oracle had, had actually said, either a Spartan king will die or Greece will fall. He knew he must have believed that oracle. He knew he was going to die, definitely. And secondly, that whole area underneath this great mountain range of Mount Oita down to the sea where it takes place is entirely sacred to Heracles. And Spartan kings were the direct lineage descendants of Heracles. He goes to die at his great hero ancestor's place in, where Heracles was seen during the battles. I mean, this is a very religious sort of self-sacrifice. Heracles had himself sacrificed himself on top of this mountain. That's where he died. Um, so I, I think that we had a, a really religious act going on here. Um, how it was then taken up in terms of um, pan-Hellenic, pan-Greek or Greek propaganda is another issue. We just spend a moment, I'm coming to Simon in a second, we just spend a moment though talking about the actual battle mm. from Herodotus, which I've read, actually for the first time, I must have read abbreviations as a kid and all the rest of it, it is in this uh, These 300 Spartans, but with the others, particularly the Spartans, did, uh, did, you can understand why people like Churchill were intoxicated by this, uh, by this battle and people like Goldie, William Goldie, and on and on. And, Pardon? <laughs> and Hitler. Uh, <laughs> well, um, Bonaparte and, and, and almost yeah. everybody in history. It was just holding off and holding, holding off thousands of people being thrown at them yeah. and these 300 men held them off. That's, yeah. it's, it, 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 it's a sort of chillingly exhilarating moment. Don't you find? I do. I do. And you believe that that is what happened? Well, I do. I find it less exciting than yeah. Marathon because, because you know, these, they won. <laughs> they did something as brave, I Marathon, think, against yeah. similar yeah. odds and won. So I actually like success. Simon, they did lose at Thermopylae mm. uh, and, uh, and Xerxes broke through. And yet Thermopylae stands for a great number of things. Uh, and I mentioned William Golding a couple of times. He wrote a very good essay about Thermopylae, and he said that a little bit of Leonidas is with me. Uh, I am free because of Leonidas, and so on. Now, uh, can you just contextualise Thermopylae in terms of Greece and us and Orientalism? Yes. Um, this is the great war between the West and the East. It's seen as a history of wars between the West and the East. Homer's Trojan War was the first war of the West against the East. And Herodotus is the man who really gives us this. He, he imagines that there was a Greek standing with Xerxes looking at the Spartans, combing their hair before battle. And Xerxes is made to ask, why are they doing this? And he's told, they're preparing to die. They know they're going to die, as Edith was saying. Edith was saying. Yeah. But then Xerxes asks, well, why would they do that? How could they fight when there's no king to tell them to fight? And he has to be explained to by the Greek that they fight because they're committed to law, to society itself. And that's where we get the idea of what do we fight for? We fight for our culture. And that's how it starts to turn into a model, not just of extraordinary bravery, but of bravery for a principle. It's not just being macho. It has to have that principle of law behind it. And that's what Herodotus wants us to take away.
So we then start to develop this extraordinary image of we few, we brave, hardy few, who stand up for our values against, and then how do we depict the East? They are massive numbers, full of gold, tricky, unreliable. They and take all, the sneaky pass behind. And they take the sneaky pass <laughs> behind in yes. order to defeat the... the yeah. So we start to develop a model of what we're fighting against, which is the corrupt East. And that model has had an absolutely huge history. Is it fair to say that that is not at all in Homer? Uh, that is not at all. So it appears in Herodotus. Does Herodotus, as it were, in the Homer, invented, when yeah. the Greeks fight the Trojans, yeah. the Trojans speak Greek. They have the same gods as the Greek. When they meet, they get on perfectly fine. The word barbarian occurs once, but not just with reference. Language. It just means language. It just, it just language. means a foreign language. But after Herodotus and after the Persian Wars, we have this idea of the barbarian, the barbarian horde, the, the mysterious and difficult East. And in a sense, Herodotus is the man who creates that for us. Is there a sense, Tom Holland, in which the Greeks and the Persians uh, had a great deal in common? Are we talking about, again, I'm just bringing this in as, a, as, a, as another theme, and we're trying to pack an awful lot into this program. I'm aware how difficult it is for you people having spent a lifetime on this to condense it, but here we go. Are we, are we talking about the Greeks having a, 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 a different um, uh, uh, concept of uh, ideas, uh, beginning a, a different intellectual history, following a different path from that being followed at that time by the Persian conglomerate? Well, the, there have been Greek cities on, on what is now Turkey who have been part of the Persian Empire, of course, and this is what, in a sense, precipitates the Persian invasion of Greece proper. Um, and, and they have found themselves profiting, really, from Persian influences and, and, and the influences of Babylon and Egypt and all sorts of things like that. But I think that... Um, one of the things that the Greeks, in, in seeing off the Persian invasion, is that they're not only seeing the Persians off, they're seeing the Egyptians off and the Babylonians off and all these stupefyingly ancient kingdoms that the Greeks have always had such respect for. And I think that that in itself gives them an enormous sense of self-confidence. And they do start to then identify their own culture and their own ideas as being something that they can stand up for. I think it's both cultural and political, and I actually think the crucial date is 493, when Miletus, which is the great Greek city that Athens sends, they revolt for isonomia. That means equality of rights under the law. They do not want to have despotic Persian rule. And that so is, democracy is the core of it, more well, than culture. Well, yeah, equality, yeah. Well, it's two things. It's yeah. the culture. Um, sorry, it's equality of rights under the law, and that is already there in Herodotus, and he yeah. says this was the beginning of evils for both Greeks and barbarians, this particular moment. And that's why the Athenians send boats, because they're democratic. And secondly, is, is, is in terms of culture, I do think that the, the really important distinction is that competition mm. between people was publicly... Um, encouraged, in fact, was publicly institutionalised yeah. in Greek culture, whether in athletics games, whether in musical games, whether in yeah. politics, whether in the law. You know, you have two lawyers arguing against each other, that sort of thing. That dialogic concept of competition, everything's in dialogue between two, is not easy to find in monolithic Eastern empires. Can I pick away this a bit further, though, Simon? Because there is some people, there is... Uh, we, often enough on this programme, we say, we sometimes think of calling it back to the Greeks. Uh, because you think, well, <laughs> the Greeks, we, anything we turns up, well, we'll go back there and we'll get a, we'll get a route and then we'll yeah. branch out from that. Um, uh, that came in, began to come in at that time. But how far had, let me put it really, had the Persians won and taken over, would the whole situation that we are in now be very different? 
Let me just say yes. <laughs> in the sense that, in this period, after the Persian Wars, despite undoubted Persian influence on Greek culture, despite whatever sorts of origins you look for, it is in this period that we start the development of democracy as a real political theoretical system, the development of medicine, the development of philosophy per se, the development of maths and science. Now, without these subjects, but the West would have been, they started then. Sorry. People would say there'd been a lot of maths and science in the Babylonian Empire, there'd been philosophy there, there'd certainly been medicine and so on. So what, really, what are the, the crucial differences, the, Simon? That's the really the interesting crucial thing. crucial differences, I think, what Edith mentioned. It's the agonistic spirit, competition, That's that, allows, yes, that yeah. allows explicit theory to take place. For me, what makes the fifth century different is not that you do maths but that you do theory it's not that you have politics politics has always been with us when anybody wants power you have politics what the fifth century gives you is the theory of politics that allows it to be exported and talked about in different ways you've always had medicine as long as someone's been sick but we have now theory of medicine and that sort of discussion of that sort and that's what the greek enlightenment really means it's that turn to self-conscious reflection about what you're doing and that's what we tend to take as our, as our origin. It's what, it's, Sorry, it's what the Persians find so baffling about the Greeks, mm. is that they are always quarrelling, they are always fighting. And the Persians try and take advantage of that. They will back tyrants against Democrats, they will back Democrats against tyrants. They will try and find families within cities to support against other families. Um, what it, what the, the Persians really like is a caste, um, a social order that will take responsibility. And it's the fact that the Greeks are always fighting, so combative, that the Persians find very, very difficult to get a handle on. And the whole Persian ideal, which is one of order, of, of um, sort of reified solidity and strength and permanence, is very, very opposed to the Greek concept of endless competition, endless um, conflict. It is more problematic than that, though. I mean, the, the, if you'd actually asked an ancient Athenian what was really different between Greeks and Persians, he'd said, in Persia, everybody's a slave. Mm. That's what he'd have said. That's the first thing he'd have said. Now, the trouble is that, you know, we can really get into idealising these ancient Athenians very, very quickly. And it's very important to remember that um, about at least 50% um, of the city of Athens was enslaved. I just, I think it's really important. This was not democracy. Yes, we're we talking it. about the, 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 the ideals that each side has. I, I think that the, the Athenians condemn the Persians for the Persian ideals and the Persians mm. condemn the Greeks for the, for the Greek ideals. They, they, they are both seeing what each side admires about the other and condemning it, in a sense. And that's, that, so in that sense, it is, uh, if you like, an ideological conflict. I know, but what I'm trying to argue is that actually the theory of democracy that Simon's talking about, theorisation of it, takes a uh, place against a background where everybody's got slaves. Yeah. And if you could actually argue you can't have a theory of democracy without slavery because it's in the language of slavery that that theory is always formulated, especially in Aristotle's politics. Mm. Can we, can we uh, come back to this... Uh, to this uh, Athens and Sparta business. We, we've talked about Thermopylae in terms of the Spartans, and then there's the Battle of Salamis, which we'll come to in a minute, and then there's the Spartans come in again at Plataea, and perhaps the most decisive send-off. The, the Spartans turn out in full force uh, and hammer the Persian. Mm -hmm. Right. But we have there a, a model for a totalitarian state, uh, a very violent, masculine, totalitarian, uh, military, 
murdering mm -hmm. state. Uh, now, that's somehow got to be accommodated in the Greek idea as well, hasn't it, Sam? It has, and it's been no problem whatsoever for the West to do so. The Spartan tradition is quite as strong as the Athenian. In fact, if you went back to the 18th century, when the French Revolution was taking place, you'd find most English people saying Sparta was rather a good thing, since it was a avoided revolution. It avoided all those nasty sort of problems that they were having on the continent. It's not by chance that both Stalin and Hitler idolized Sparta in a particular way, but we shouldn't forget that English people have done rather a lot of that too, because order has always been something attractive to certain sorts of political ideologues. I think, the, wa of us. Sorry. I think yeah. the watershed is 1821, um, when mm. the um, Ale Alexander Ypsilandis, you know, raises, invades Ottoman Moldavia and says the Greeks shall be free and, and so mm. kicks off the whole Greek revolution. He actually says that we have to do again what Miltiades, who's the hero of Marathon, Themistocles, who's the hero mm. of Salamis and Leonidas did. He actually puts Athens in with Sparta at that moment. Mm. And from then on, on, whether it's in, in Bulwer or George Grote or whoever, the Athenian democracy becomes actually okay. Before that, it's seen as like ochlocratic, which means the rule of the rabble, the rule of the plebs, the rule of the scruffy people. But it's interesting you bring up the invasion of the, the attack on the Ottoman Empire because yeah. we, we, we are, we, we, the West is attacking an empire which has been delineated and against which black, black propaganda has been uh, uh, directed since, since Marathon, Thermopylae, Salamis. Was, were the, was that seriously something? Was that the cast of thinking which was more was unbroken? And some would say, Edward Said, the late Edward Said would have said, uh, still around. I think that the first moments of mythologizing these battles as a battle of West against East was almost the day after the battle finished. Throughout the Greek world it continued. It was the standard rhetorical trope, we should be like the men of Thermopylae, mm. the men of Marathon. It went on all the way through the ancient world. And certainly after the Renaissance, when, we, when England and the rest of Europe rediscovered classics, it became a central part of every schoolboy's learning. And since we were at war for large periods at that time with the Ottoman Empire or with earlier still with the Crusades, it meant that we have constantly relived those models in that way. So I'm afraid in that particular respect, I think Edward is right. We slightly got in front of ourselves because Thermopylae was a defeat. I mean, it's interesting, yes. it's a bit like Dunkirk, isn't it? It's the defeat mm -hmm. that you use as, as a spur to victory and the defeat yeah. that you somehow, you, you, you alchemize into victory. But after that, there was a real victory for the Greeks at sea, and that was important for the British Empire later as a model, at sea at Salamis, where the Greeks defeated the great Persian navy. Can you briskly tell us about that, Tom, just to get that through? Well, Thermopylae, the, the defeat of the Spartans at Thermopylae leaves the road to Athens open. Um, there is no way that Athens can be held. The um, women and children of Athens have been um, evacuated. The Greek men have taken to the ships, and with the other Greek ships are waiting off the island of Salamis, which is just off, just off um, Athens. Um, if, if Leonidas is sort of, if you like, a, a figure from the Iliad, like Achilles, dying young for glory, then um, the Athenian leader, Themistocles, is like Odysseus. He is a man who is very adept at trickery and um, drawing his enemy in. And this is what he does. The Athenians and the other Greeks are outnumbered, so they want to negatize the Persian numbers. They want to draw them into the straits which lie between Salamis and the Attic mainland. And he does this by playing a trick. Themistocles sends a slave over to Xerxes saying, the Greeks are about to run away. You better come in and get them. And because this is ex essentially what Xerxes wants to hear, he takes the bait. 
sends the Persian fleet into the straits where the Greeks are waiting. They pounce and there is great victory. You couldn't be shorter or more or more decisive than that. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, also, the, the, a little thing, uh, uh, not, a, not such a thing, a massive thing, is, is the, the fortune of fortune. The Greeks had discovered a massive silver mine, the Athenians Sorry. had discovered a massive silver mine and voted the money to the building of a navy rather than some That's of the right. citizens said, let's divide it up between us. Yes. And, and again, your man, that your cunning Odysseus figure must have said it should be into a navy. So they had these faster, lighter ships, which meant... It. So we had Salamis and was not the end of the matter or we still have one more battle before the Persians are seen off, this time by the Spartans. Well, we do, and I, th I think it's very important to remember that the battle that actually saw them off um, was the one that people talk about least, the yes. Battle of Plataea. I really think if we're going to talk about um, which one does all our freedom, blah, 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 depend upon, I would, would like to talk about Plataea. But because can you just give us a date from that, then? That is 479. 479 BC, um, it's so, yeah. the year after Salamis, um, and Xerxes flees after his fleet is destroyed, le leaving um, enormous amounts of infantry which could easily have won again, um, which in a very, very, very long and hard, um, brilliant, brilliant, mainly Spartan, though the Athenians were also involved, that really was the, the pan-Greek effort um, at Plataea, um, extraordinary use of, of the hoplite, um, um, the, the, the infantry. Um, what was extraordinary about it? Well, just very, very highly skilled and um, against bigger numbers and better weapons. It's difficult because because um, it's the battle takes place on a plain where the Persians can use their cavalry. The Greek army doesn't want to get onto the plains. The Persian cavalry doesn't want to go up into the hills where the Greeks are. So the genius of the of the Spartan strategy is to is to somehow manage to lure the Persians up onto the ground where they shouldn't actually be. They, and this is what they do. They fake a retreat. They fake a retreat, and which then, is and incredibly then hard to do, and only sort of Spartan training <coughs> would have enabled them to, to do, do it. That. Exactly. Uh, why is it hard to do? I mean, I, I'm interested. I'm not trying. The fight the way Athenians and Spartans fought was in something called a phalanx, which is a bit like a rugby scrum in the sense that there's a large group of men tied together. Tied together? Well, not tied, literally, the, but you're, the, you carry a shield in your left hand, spilled in your right hand, and your left hand defends the, the shield. And two phalanxes push against each other, and if one f collapses, it's completely routed. It, it, so it's, it's a very, you've got to march, it's got to be absolutely, it's like synchronised marching. The, the, are, <laughs> the shield is so heavy, it's unbelievably heavy. Uh, it's, mm. it's, it's, um, they talk constantly about people who simply couldn't manage to hold up their shield after mm. they're 40 years old and, and, and things. Mm. And they remember they fought till they were at least 60. I mean, this is another thing which, you know, I would tell and my it, husband. And it's <laughs> 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 is mean you bring Sparta yeah, into the bedroom? <laughs> there were lots and lots of granddads, dad's <laughs> army out there in, 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 in all these armies. And also, the helm, you just couldn't hear. That was the other problem with orders being given. Very hard to actually hear them, particularly with the din of battle and everything, but the helmet would block off your ears. It's a bit annoying. We're coming to the end of the programme. What seems to be the most interesting battle is, <laughs> and which we know least about. I mean, I know least about yeah. it. And well, historically, was, I really do believe, the, the decisive one. The what, Persians what, gave up at that point. Yeah, I think historically, undoubtedly, it's the most important. But what, for me, is most interesting for the general line that you're taking here is the way that Salamis is so much more interesting in terms of the mythology. And it's because the Athenians actually deserted the city. They were given an oracle, trust to the wooden walls. Nobody knew what that meant until Themistocles said, let's just get in the ships. But what they actually did was give up the city. And the city was absolutely burnt and destroyed. And that sort of gesture of saying, what counts famously, as he said, the city is the men. 
And so this idea that what we care about, even though we're desperate to think about our own country, it's people fighting together. That mythology has been terribly important. Yes. And I think the scene of it, the evacuees watching the smoke rising from the Acropolis and knowing that all is at stake in this dreadful battle that is looming, one of the great scenes of history. So did the Greeks feel, were the Greeks after Plataea, Greeks, did we have after those battles a feeling of the Hellens, a, 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 not a people but a language and association? Did we have that, Edith, first yes, of all? Yes, and did, the, and did the Persians, the Persians did not come back, and so we have, a, is this a great watershed? Is this the is. big division? But the next great war is the Peloponnesian War. Mm. Almost in, within 20 years, we've got Athens against Sparta, another war that racks the Greek world. So while it's true that we have a, we start to develop a notion, a cultural notion of Greekness, we shouldn't forget, there was no institutional Greekness, there was no country Greek. They continued to fight city against city. There was never a country, a political unit of Greece, until, again, after 1821. I mean, that, that was when Greece actually happens for the first ever time, politically speaking. But um, the, the sense of Greekness is undoubtedly born at this time. And when Leonidas summons a, a conference to Sparta before he, he, he goes off to fight, he actually, the place it was held was called the Hellenion, the, the Greek place. This is where the Greeks are going to talk about, about defending Greece. But it is after this we have Aeschylus play the Persians, where he he, he begins to dis describe the Persians as as soft and over exotic and over luxurious compared with the muscular, uh, uh, might be even use the word Spartan and cunning uh, Greeks, and, and that that begins then, and also the culture begins to strike in then, doesn't it? But but in a sense, this is appropriating Persian propaganda and turning it against them. Because for the Persians, the wealth and splendor and magnificence of the great king is precisely the point. It's meant to intimidate and overwhelm. And the Greeks take this and say, well, your splendor and your magnificence is actually a proof of your, your softness and your decadence. And there's this whole idea that the Persian Empire is decadent and doomed to fall, which will ultimately feed into the, the mythology and ideology of Alexander. Uh, Frank, what was the... What and we got finally, Simon, what reaction was that in the Persian Empire to these four battles and to these two big defeats, Salamis and Plataea? It's it, almost nothing that we know about. This great event in the Western world, as we like to call it, seems to have had very little impact on the empire which continued. Xerxes continued to be in, in control, he continued to rule, and the Persian Empire continued for a great number of years, until Alexander came along and created a different sort of empire. So in some senses, if you were a Persian, you might have seen this as a rather misfortunate border skirmish, rather than the creation of civilization. Something way out on the outer edge of the blanket. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you all very much indeed. I'm sorry we had to gallop once or twice, but, uh, but there you go. Next week we'll be talking about the sublime. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.